1: This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about where academics, specifically customer lifetime value academics, meet reality. To help me discuss this topic is Joe Megabo. Joe is an advisor to Advent International and also sits on four advisory boards plus one public board. He has tremendous experience extracting value from digital data. In fact, I remember the very first time I saw Joe up on stage at eMetrics and he basically outlined what was cutting edge at the time, was the use of analytics data with what you might see on the network, like a network operations center, which was just a groundbreaking
0: unification
1: of data streams. So Joe, thank you so much. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. And thanks for the kind words.
1: Now, I've also heard that you were one of the originals at TeaLeaf. Is that true that you were there back in the day? And did you actually name all of TeaLeaf's products? (laughs)
0: So there's some infamy around that as uh, they got very cutesy. Yeah, I actually was looking at T-Leaf from an investment standpoint for my prior company before it incorporated and ended up realizing it wasn't fitting our profile of our investment strategy, but it was fitting my profile of my career strategy. So I joined as the thing launched and, and was there from the very beginning.
1: Wow, nice, nice. So was it the tea leaf aspect that brought you to this topic? Or was there more in your background that kind of drew you into the use of data and CLV?
0: That's a fair question. I mean, I was an engineer originally, electrical engineer and then software developer. So I mean, I had a a grounding in the technology and I graduated post-internet, but pre-web. So a lot of the web stuff sort of happened as my career was kicking off. And I ended up going back to business school and took some classes that really just rocked my world on data-driven marketing. And if you think about it, pre-web, you were starting to have the loyalty programs with the grocery and airlines and credit card companies were getting very, very sophisticated on segmentation and targeting and the behavioral data and what you could do with that. So there was starting to be a renaissance of getting out of the old school sort of madman, finger in the wind side of marketing and realizing you could get very sophisticated. And this was before the web even happened. So I just, I fell in love with that concept that you could actually take data and use it for good in marketing circles. And then the web started to happen and it was like, holy cow, now we've got not only transactional data, but behavioral data. So, yeah, when I ran into T-Leaf, I mean, I was already, I had just been in a, in a management consulting role doing some of the uh, early days, I mean, this is late 90s here, so early days on web development and building out platforms and some of the early commerce plays. So, yeah, when I saw what T-Leaf had built in a lab, which was really at the time just the debugging tool for solving, it, it spun out of SAP, some of their own problems, uh-huh. the potential I saw to have these incredible data-driven insights on What and why consumers were uh, able to get through processes and websites and where friction was and how to optimize around that just blew me away. I'd never seen anything quite like it.
1: You know, it's funny we use those terms so much today. It's hard to remember that that concept of friction and optimization was actually in play in the late 1990s. I mean, (laughs)
0: You know, we could get sort of philosophical here, but the reality of those concepts were around long before we named them. Consumers were struggling all over the place. And in the early days, it was bad. I mean, it was really hard to get through most transactions and websites. And part of the challenge is most of the back ends were built for these monolithic closed systems where you owned the entirety of the engagement. Well, not to mention uh, we were all on dial-ups. Well, sure, you know, you had bandwidth issues, but when suddenly in the web, what's assembled in the page, I and mean, we take this so for granted now, but what's assembled in the page, is fleeting. It's It's a momentary collection of content and data that's coming from a multitude of systems and sources that all somehow come together in real time just for you. You know, and this is where all the idea around personalization started to really blossom. I don't think we ever really got there. For 20 years, we've been talking about one-to-one marketing and personalization, and to be a, a little uh, perhaps generalizing, the best we've come up with is people who bought this also bought that. <laughs> it, 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 we've solved some pretty sophisticated math problems, but I, I mean the idea of, of this true personalization is still a long way out. Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, after tea Leaf, and then you had a little bit of management consulting, then what happened?
0: Yeah, summarize quickly, but yeah, after T-Leaf, I ended up going to one of my customers, which was Hotels.com, running the data side, the analytics and optimization, and also as part of that, took on all of the digital marketing there. And we took a very quant view, a very consumer-centric driven view of what the opportunities were and and really just rebuilt everything. It was probably uh, two of my most prolific years in my career, dot uh, Hotels.com was owned by Expedia Inc. I ended up going up to Expedia.com, doing some very similar work, ultimately uh, heading up the U.S. business. So was the general manager of Expedia.com, the U.S. business, and then uh, did a crazy flip into retail and ended up going into American Eagle Outfitters as their chief digital officer. The CEO at the time realized the travel was probably about 10 years ahead of retail in its disruption and evolution and was trying to instill some of that same digital-minded customer centricity into the retail world. So uh, ended up figuring out how do we actually bring an a older school brick-and-mortar retailer into the digital age and got really good and <laughs> sophisticated at that. Briefly after that, I was president of a little retailer called Joyous, and, and then that got to me where we started, which is working with some of these private equity firms and advisory boards.
1: Very nice. Well, I remember back when you were at Hotels.com, because that was actually when I saw you at Emetrics. And I remember calling back to your example a number of times and saying, wow, you know, this is how somebody does it. This is how they start with wins in one aspect, and then they move up in the organization, and then they get their team behind them, and, you know, all these great things keep happening. So you were, you know, you were the shining star example for a long period of time, still are (laughs) in this space. uh...
0: Thank you. It's good to get in early, I guess. Lots (laughs) of wash, rinse, and repeat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So let's talk a little bit about the academic side. You were inspired in B-School with your marketing analytics classes. Clearly, you were exposed to the academic information. Did you want to just come out and apply them all immediately? And if so, what happened in that connection between what you found in academia versus what you
0: found in reality? Yeah, it's and I'd say it's, it's hit me a few times in my career because, interestingly, not only as I tried to kind of have my idealistic academic view collide with the challenges of the real world, but also when I left Tea Leaf and went to the other side of the table and you know stopped selling software, which had some academic similarities and that you're selling the idealistic potential of what can be done with the software not so much the reality of mm. you know, what can be done and most software companies are constantly frustrated on why most customers only use a fraction of the capabilities so flipping to the other side even there coming out of tea Leaf and thinking wow i'm going to change the world with all the stuff i know that we have in our fingertips turned out it wasn't quite so simple in the real world so I've actually enjoyed that real world side more because, you know, figuring and maybe it's the engineer in me, but figuring out, hey, you've got all this stuff that's possible, you know, but how do you figure out in the real world how to take all that possibility and actually create something that works, create that magic box that does something is it turns out to be the real battle. It's it's not knowing what to do, it's can you actually execute and get it done and how do you get that done and can you actually then get value out of the other side. That's, that's where I've had most of my fun in my career. But it, but it turns out it's not as clean and simple as what the academic side would say.
1: Okay, so is there a rule of thumb about the distance between academia and practical application?
0: There are hype curves for sure. And, and then on top of the academia, you get what gets picked up in the press. What's hot in the press often doesn't get realized in, you know, call it a majority or a significant number of businesses and probably five years after the PR buzz dies down and they're already talking about the next thing. In fact, that can be a challenge inside of companies because you're trying to invest in initiatives that feel like, oh, you know, we've been talking about this for years. Let's actually invest in something new and fresh. We're like, yeah, but we never actually delivered or solved the stuff we were talking about five years ago. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I mean, I I think it depends on the concept, but I'd say five to 10 years tends to be sort of when things start building up some momentum on the academic side before you really start saying some meaningful application in business is probably a safe rule of thumb.
1: Okay, so there's, I'm sure there's, Dozens and dozens of different things that come out of academia about what you should do and then dozens and dozens of ways you could try to apply that. How do you think or how do you frame the problem that you want to solve in picking what you want from academia and deciding whether it makes sense for
0: practical application? Yeah, maybe just to back up a little and color some of the challenges there are on mapping some of these academic things in, because I think that then sets the stage for how you start to think about prioritization. Mm -hmm. And as you think about, I mean, there are lots of different areas to try to solve problems. And in the spirit of this call, was we're thinking more of the customer lifetime value and, and, and around the customer, I'd say there's kind of two big pieces of information that I think are often assumed, but turn out are really hard to get to. One is, which is, I Know, a common theme on your show is, is attribution. I know what I spent. And I know what I made. But can I actually match, you know, that dollar of spend to that dollar of revenue in as, as clean a way as possible? And can I do that? At an incremental level, if I spell, spend one extra dollar, do I know that that dollar is accretive? Because mm-hmm. it, it gets so averaged out, it's hard to understand. Is it it's dilutive, but not but is it still accretive? And it, you know, h- how do you balance those things together? And it turns out it's really, really hard to do that. Because tracking the customer across channels and understanding the behaviors is very, very, very difficult. And I actually, on that one, would love to get back to it. When I was at Expedia years ago, we did a phenomenal academic exercise to try to solve that, which I'd be happy to talk to. But it's a really tough problem to solve. The other is, can I really identify who my customer is? Because in order for me to do anything around customer lifetime value, it assumes I have a customer over a period of time. And I can track them, and whether it's cohorts or just generalized lifetime value, how do I really look at them? And it turns out that's also a really, really hard thing to do. Do you think Uh, it's easier now, though, or is it still so hard? I I actually, believe it or not, think it's getting harder, not easier. And it's because the number – call it omnichannel – but the number of endpoints that a consumer can engage with a brand is exploding. Mm -hmm. If you think about your multitude of devices that you have, your phones and your tablets and your laptops, and you may have one or two of each, and you may have your work ones and you may have your home ones. I see people who have a home laptop, their work laptop, their work phone, their home phone, a tablet or two, and then you start putting in set-top box and voice and all these other mechanisms It's growing and the ability to track across them. I mean, there are very few brands that you're in a logged in, authenticated state every single time you engage with the brand. That's a luxury. It's very untypical. And then on top of that, the data collection across these are very different. As an example, years ago, when I was at American Eagle, when we were starting to try to build a single customer repository, one of the things we recognized is we had lots and lots of customer data marts lots. I think it was almost a dozen. And it was because we had our loyalty program. We had our other loyalty program, which was our co-brand credit card or private label credit card, which were similar, but not necessarily aligned. We had our account information. If you signed up online, we had our email file, which may or may not be connected to the account. Yeah. We had affinity programs. We had our mobile app which was a different thing and a different set of tracking. There's the POS, there was credit card receipts. So, I mean, all these things came together. And the primary key on these weren't necessarily the same either. In the loyalty program, it was phone number. Mm -hmm. On credit card, it was really, it was address. Obviously online tended to be email, but I looked at it. And when we started this process, something like a third of my loyalty members didn't even have an email address on file. So, you know, so there's
1: your key. You don't have a key, or the key that you might have isn't even necessarily that, one-to-one.
0: That's right. And more recently, I was working with an athletic company, and we had highly loyal customer and very high engagement with the loyalty program, but still 30%, 40% of transactions of the register didn't have a loyalty account associated with it. And in some early security decisions, they decided not to save anything about these transactions, not even a hashed version of the credit card, which means there was every single transaction that wasn't tied to the loyalty program was completely independent anonymous. And there was no way to track anything over time about customer behavior in the store for a third to 40% of your customers. And that represented something like 80% of all transactions with store versus web. So I mean, you have these huge blind spots that turn out to be really critical, especially because you tend to index on the best data around your best customers, and while certainly protecting them and leaning into them is important, understanding how you get everyone else to become your best customers is there's rich territory. And if you don't have the data, what do you do? Yeah, you basically
1: have a giant hole. It almost sounds like you're making a case for you know, a Napoleonic slash and burn policy to just start over from scratch because it would be faster and more convenient than trying to work with the legacy systems.
0: I mean, there are a lot of approaches you can take as a marketer say, say, we're going to do it so it's easier for me. And perhaps that is Napoleonic, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up in a better place. It takes a concerted long-term view on the loyalty program. What it may mean is you're going to say, okay, over time, we're going to breed out the bad actors, the people who it's not them. It's you came into the program at a time where you say, okay, starting nine months from now, we require an email on file and you start a process to engage with those customers and you reward them for adding an email. So it's in their best interests. And some of them you can't reach and you never get, which means they're probably not, particularly active oil customers anyway. And over time, you convert as many as you can. And you start by stopping the bleeding, which means all net new customers, you're signing up to whatever the program have the new standards. And then by the time you get to D-Day, you know, you may have three or four or 5% of noise. That's, again, probably not particularly tragic because you've been unable to connect or reach with them. And then you just say you drop them and you move forward. But I mean, that may be a year long process. So mm-hmm. if you're saying, Hey, right now I want to do a meaningful analysis to go back and say, sure, I'll get that for you in 13 or 14 months. That doesn't fly so well, but no. that's part of it. It really gets down to, what do I have now that I can act on and, and what am I going to do later? And how do I assess that journey? Cause it's not to say you can't do things today. I think, there's all sorts of things you can do where you can be less wrong, which means you're directionally correct. It may not be the right answer, but it's still going to be a better answer than doing nothing or a better answer than what you were doing before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's
1: go back to what you were talking about a, a few minutes ago about Expedia and maybe digging in a little bit to that particular example. Is there a way that you worked with the data in Expedia so that the academic elements weren't lost? They were actually pulled together, ideally around the customer?
0: Yeah, so this, and again, what I'm going to describe is a little more commonplace now, and there's some very interesting businesses that have even come and gone around these topics, but I bring it up because we did this at a time that it was very cutting edge and was driven entirely from trying to apply some academic concepts. So we were, Expedia's fewer channels, so this, you know, mobile was very small then, most of our business was online, we didn't have physical stores, so we had a pretty clean set of customer data in general just the benefit of being a online pure play. But there was multiple channels that we spent into and being a a huge travel marketplace, we spent a ton of money, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing across nearly every channel that that we could actually do efficiently. So part of the question was, at the time, we were doing what everyone was doing, which was last touch attribution. And everyone knew last touch attribution was wrong. We knew it was Better than not having an attribution model, but what we were trying to assess is, as we were trying to squeak more and more profitability out of the business, and where were we leaving money on the table? And competition was growing, so where can we lean in? What could we do to get out of last touch? Because, like for example, things like email always index very high. It's a highly efficient channel. It's relatively low cost. But you know, if it's in the consideration set for last touch, what is it stealing? From what really drove the sale? If if they just searched for Las Vegas and they came in on paid search with Google, and then we retargeted them with an email, and then they came back and bought. If it weren't for that initial click, then we wouldn't have got the sale. But it was getting zero percent of the sale. So there weren't really any models to do this, and it was yeah. I mean, there were some weighted average and and some fairly simplistic models. And and in fact, another person you and I know, who out of respect for this person, who runs a very, very successful analytics blog, you know, actually told me it was lunacy to even try to attack this. And (laughs) I just, I felt that was wrong. So we did. And one of my data scientists was doing some research on the academic side and found a proven model that had been used primarily in healthcare. It was a survival model or technically a proportional hazard model. And the the specific one we used was, was called a Cox regression. And what it was, was Let's take a look over a long period of time where you have a disparate set of events. And again, think medical here and a a drug trial. Mm -hmm. How do I understand the efficacy of the drug over years and understand at the end, what were the factors that actually drove? Was the patient cured? Were they not cured? Did they live? Did they die? And so forth. And as she started to examine the model, she realized, huh this works perfectly for how we've been trying to think about solving this whole marketing touch attribution problem huh. and this was probably in uh, i don't know around 2000 no that's not right i'm sorry around 2010. Mm-hmm. so you know maybe eight nine years ago so this is pretty early on some of the, the attribution work and we were using one of the big data science packages and they had already again on their pharma side of the business had already built an application of this model But we took that model and used it for marketing and ran it through the the statistics blender. And it produced results that, you know, obviously you train the model and you test it against another data set and so on. And and we were able to get to a place that we had high confidence that this was working. And, you know, it kind of proved out exactly what we thought, that some of the channels that get a lot of credit were being overstated. And some of the channels that turned out to be really critical were getting underinvested. And we were able to very academically and accurately describe where we needed to shift our marketing spend. And it was rigorous enough that we could get buy-in from like the head of finance and the people we needed to to say, hey, despite the fact that the models we've been using are saying this money we're spending over here is losing money for us, we have better data now that shows it's actually not. And we were able to get going. Now, at the time, we didn't have any way that we could figure out how to productionalize it. It was more of a moment in time sort Mm -hmm. of evaluation of historically what had worked and what hadn't. And from that, we were able to build some more static factors into our more traditional models kind of a weighted last touch approach Uh that uh, that allowed us to do that. And and again, it's gotten much more sophisticated. But to me, that was just a great example of where we had a real problem and we were able to go to some, you know, a more academic rigor to actually answer something that we could then act on. And that's not something that happens all the time. And it was something driven on, on an enormity of need because we were spending so much money and we needed to find a way to get better at this. But it was just a great example and one that I was really proud of the team for.
1: Well, and I think that's fascinating that you found a model in a different industry altogether. You didn't go out looking at more marketing academia research. You actually went and looked for what model or what other other situation or what other industry has a similar problem and matches the same type of problem we're trying to solve here. I oftentimes think that those are areas of undervalued resources.
0: Yeah, no, agree. And it's especially in business. I think in academia, you see a little more of this where, you know, you have a hypothesis that what works over in this discipline might work elsewhere, but certainly not in business to, uh, you know, you really have to step out of your area of expertise and knowledge to say, hey, I'm in a business selling automobiles, and I'm going to now go look at a business that is selling Cosmetics and, and see if there's anything I can learn there around selling automobiles. I mean, that, that's a big leap. But I think taking that academic mindset allowed us to uh, connect some dots that way.
1: Now, I have to ask, of course, in this model, did you include customer lifetime value as you tried to understand the value of the different conversion
0: points? Oh, you're getting greedy. In this particular analysis, we did not. I, we did other, like I, I did some really interesting CLV modeling on mobile and trying to assess what was the value of a download in the early days of the app store was an example of where we directly use CLV. But this model was really just, could I understand for any individual user what was the impact of multiple touches with multiple spam levels against the final transaction or not. Got it.
1: Got it. Well, it still makes sense. It's still a great example. Do you have any other examples you care to share?
0: On the CLV side? Well, Um, CLV
1: is ideal, but it doesn't have to be CLV. It's really about where academics is, you know, maybe a little short-sighted or where we can find a good intersection between academia and reality.
0: Yeah, it's and it tends when I when I think more of the academic approach, it really is driven often around my data sciences teams. Yeah, I think there's many examples of where we've been able to apply sort of the best thinking in data science. An example as retail started to decline and we were looking at American Eagle at store closures, my data science team was able to build a pretty sophisticated model using CLV. And you know, and and understanding historical behavior and, and predicting CLV. If you close a store, could we model out based on geolocation of nearby stores as well as their engagement with online channels? You know what the actual loss of business would be, and how much business we'd recoup through digital channels, and how much business would we recoup from you know nearby stores, mm-hmm. and what were those radiuses, and what were the profiles that drove online. And it was a model that we directly acted on. I mean it became a model that helped us very deliberately prioritize which stores we closed and also build our forecasts, our operating plan around the expectations on, you know, not just wiping those sales off the books, but understanding more practically what we'd really see happen when we close these stores. So it's just yeah. another example of a different way it's been used.
1: You know, I, I love what you said about prioritization because I've oftentimes felt that CLV in general gives us a little more signal to all the noise, all the choices that we have, whether it's attribution or whether it's store closures or whether it's how to execute a digital transformation, You know, something much bigger. Do you think that that's true, that CLV is, is really one of the leading metrics that people can rely on in order to prioritize what they need to do?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I I think it kind of gets back to the broader question of why do CLB? you Mm -hmm. know, and I think you've got to have, in fact, if you like, I can kind of walk through the framework I think about on when approaching any of these big rigorous analyses what must be true before you even kick them off would be okay if I walk through that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, um, I think that's a yeah, really yeah. nice application, you know, in, in terms of yeah. if you wanted to take next steps, what would you do?
0: Yeah. So I mean, what I, what I think about, and, and again, prioritization, may be one, but I, I, I say you start with, do you have a actionable hypothesis and there's a lot of analyses that are done. I think just because you can, like wow if we could pull this data together put it into a box shake it up we're going to know more about our customers and there's sort of this presumption that the data will tell us what to do (laughs) that clusters will appear and white space and gaps will suddenly have light shine on them and action will result right and my experience is sometimes you get lucky and that happens But more often than not, it doesn't, which means either the data is clear, but no one is set up to look at it or... It's just never quite as clear as you'd like it to be. So I tend to start with, unless you have an actionable hypothesis, something that I believe the data is going to show me X, Y, Z. And based on that, I am going to go do something. I'm going to pull a lever. I'm going to make a change. It's going to affect my prioritization, as you were just asking about. But there's something I can act on. If I can't define that hypothesis, let's not even bother. Mm-hmm. So that's gate one of three. You know, gate two to me is, okay, okay let's assume we've got an actual hypothesis, we do the analysis and we get the results we want from the data side. Is it something that could be acted on? And that could mean it would require technical requirement, you know, technical capabilities that we don't have. Okay, to do that would mean we need to change something on how the associate engages with the customer at the store and we'd signal them to do that, but our, our point of sale doesn't have any way to do that. And we're not replacing the POS in a system that can for a year from now. So so even if we had the data, we couldn't act on it because of technical limitations. Mm-hmm. Or it would require resources. You know, we would now need a content team or you know a, a production team or a development team to go act on it. And we don't have the resources to do that. So gate two to mean is even if you could prove it and it's actionable. Can I, through resource allocation or technical capability, actually do it? And it's it's easy to overlook that and just assume those things would be true or that they would happen, but not so. You need to kind of pre-vet that. And then the third one, which is the really tricky one, is is it strategic? You know, is does this align with my strategy? Because it turns out even if you can prove it. And even if you have the resources to execute on it, you still, as a company, may not choose to do so because you have a finite number of resources and other things may be a higher priority. If I do a deep analysis, I mean, this could, for instance, be quite offensive to this conversation, but if I do a big analysis on showing how I could improve my retention rates through CLB and, and I really can build this out, But right now, because of where I am as a company, I'm putting all of my energy into growing top line through acquisition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to divert resources to a, a big retention initiative if that's not aligned with what my business goals are at this moment in time. Maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now. But right now, we need to be really laser focused on something else. So again, I think you have to understand your business and your capabilities before you get into this. Mm -hmm. So is it useful prioritization? Sure. But that's still only step one of three to set this up for success. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, Joe. Thank you. So this has been a a really informative conversation in terms of the the framework and the actions and the examples. It's been really nice. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, is it okay for them to reach out to you? And how would they reach you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm on nearly every system. My uh, my ID is just my last name, Megabo, and uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's my uh, my shortcut, Twitter, you name it. So just find me at Megabo and feel free to reach out.
1: Excellent. I'm going to do a quick summary, but please feel free to step in if if there's anything you want to add or if I haven't captured something right. But what I was particularly interested in in the very beginning as we kicked off after, uh, after we got past all the background and the tea leaf fun, we talked about academia tending to be maybe five to 10 years ahead of practical application. And we talked a lot about the reasons about why that is, but particularly the mapping issue, having lots of data makes it inherently hard to get to the pieces that have to connect to each other. So in the attribution model, it's can I match it to the person? Can I tell if each new dollar is accretive? And then it could also be in identifying the customer themselves, which we talked about is actually getting harder, not easier. And frankly, that that surprised me a little bit. I, I thought it was really getting easier in identifications, but I completely buy your point about the endpoints exploding because it's no longer even mobile desktop and the number of devices, but it's your car, your refrigerator, you know, all these different IoT devices that factor in too.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, fortunately data science is getting better and technology is getting better. So there's sort of a race going on between how smart we are and how much data we have. But yeah, it's 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 not obvious which side's going to win. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then, then we talked about the kind of impact that you can get. And you gave us two examples, one about attribution at Expedia. And even though you didn't use CLV, that's okay. It was early on. And what was so interesting in that particular model was the ability to pull the model from pharma into marketing, and which I think just speaks highly, not just to your data scientists that did that, but also to the need to look beyond where we might think the solutions are and to think about other situations in business, other environments where the same protocols happen and we can simply pick it up and move that model over. And then you also talked about American Eagle. And this was, I think, so fascinating because it's a connection between, I think about it as a connection between online and offline, but maybe it was really just about the offline store closures. But I was wondering if you actually factored in not just the geolocation and where They would go offline, but would there be an effect online as well? Oh,
0: absolutely. No, that was part of the model. And, you know, an interesting side point on that is physical stores drive online sales really well. I mean, if I'm in a region that doesn't have physical stores, the minute I open up physical stores, my online sales will grow dramatically. And it's, sort of counter to a lot of the populist discussion on online replacing offline, but the reality is, and by the way, I should say, this was specific to apparel. I can't say this would be true of every business, but I do see this happening with Warby Parker opening stores all over, Peloton opening stores all over, and it works, and the stores are individually profitable. It's a great way to discover the brand and then buy online or buy there or either, And part of what we were looking at is once the store there and you built that base of customers who want to engage and then you take it away, Mm -hmm. how much business do we actually then increase online because they're willing to shift that business online? So that was absolutely part of the model
1: because they're loyal that's fascinating i love it so and then finally we talked about the framework and the three gates is there an actionable hypothesis i love this because so many times and i i have literally run into this at least twice in the last two weeks where folks that we've talked to have made the assumption that because they've landed everything in a data lake that suddenly bells will ring and angels will sing and all the answers will become pouring out of the lake and it is just not that way the actionable hypothesis is incredibly important so that you don't get stuck in that general profiling exercise and then the second gate of can we act on it is it technically possible I, I think is also important I've seen many analyses that run through and then there's no way to execute on it what a waste of time and how disappointing for the folks that spent their effort on that you know this is totally preventable up front. and it also I think helps you get buy-in for people who would be taking action so an incredibly important step, and then the last part about is it strategic? Is it aligned with the company goals? Now I agree with this, but at the same time I also feel like can analysis show that there are places where the company has maybe a little bit of a blind spot, and maybe it should be a priority even if it can't be a priority immediately.
0: Yeah, no, for sure, and and I think though it, it still has to be worked simultaneously, bottoms up, top down. I think, again, part of my point is, how do you not have just a demoralizing failure where really smart people did great work and it results in nothing, mm-hmm. You know, which is how you start losing really smart people? If you go to, if you do something that is that profoundly interesting and is a strategic opportunity you know, to just go, surprise, hey, we just spent the last three months or four months doing this analysis. We worked it out and here you go nothing moves that quickly in business. You do your strategic planning once a year. And so I, I think you have to at least have enough leadership representation that you can sort of prevet and say, Hey, FYI, we're working on something that I think is really novel. I don't know where it's going to go, but if it does, this could be a huge opportunity for the business. And you start to pre-flight that. Mm -hmm. And if it's getting shut down, I I mean, if it's just, even if you could come back to me with something twice as good as what you think is possible, Joe, here's the reasons why we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I'd rather know that even in my bones, if I know I'm right, it's just not going to happen there because I don't have buy-in from either Who's the ultimate leader or those who hold the purse strings or whatever um, versus, you know what, that's interesting. That's not exactly where we're going. But if you can truly demonstrate that, let's talk which isn't a guarantee, but at least means you've got your day at, at the table.
1: Incredibly important. I love that approach. So very, very grateful that you've shared that framework with us. So as always, everyone, links to everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. So any particular call out and the transcription of this podcast will also appear there if you want to copy and paste some of the framework. Joe, thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
0: Thank you so much. It's been fun.
1: And remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal not noise and believe me there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, You can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy The Signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.